Good morning again, church. It's interesting to consider Mary Magdalene's experience at the, at the tomb. Um, it's interesting for me to consider her experience because we started talking about writing that drama some five months ago, four to five months ago. But just this week, someone reached out to me as a self-described skeptic, raising as a part of their skepticism the record of Mary's experience at the tomb uh, Easter morning, resurrection morning. The email is on the screen. I blotted out the personal aspects of it. I'll read it to you. He writes, hello, I attended Glen Ellen Bible Church for a while around 2012. And I now live in, and he gives his state, and I'm from, and he gives his region. I am skeptical of the Bible being God's word and would like to share some information. And then he says parenthetically, you might already know this information. Then he says, two gospels say there were two angels at the tomb. Two gospels say there was one angel at the tomb. His point is, what are we to make of that? Then he says, only two gospels report Mary that Mary saw Jesus shortly after being at the tomb. His point there is, why, what's going on with all four Gospels? Then he says, Jesus saw Nathanael under a fig tree. Now, you'd have to know quite a bit of the New Testament to know what he's referring to here, but Jesus, before he called Nathanael as a disciple, later says, I saw you under a fig tree before you were in my presence. And it it amazes Nathaniel, and it's a part of Nathaniel's confession. Truly you are, you must be the Messiah. So he says, Jesus saw Nathaniel under the fig tree, yet didn't know where Lazarus was laid. His point is, what are we to make of this? Uh, Jesus' apparent um, ignorance when it comes to where Lazarus had been buried. As our emails unfolded over the course of the week, I was reminded of the very human struggle that we all face to see the forest for the trees. We can get lost in the details if we're not careful. That is to say, we're easily distracted by the details in a story, and we can, if not careful, miss the message of the story. For example, he's distracted by the number of angels reported at the tomb in the various Gospels, the four Gospels. And he's distracted that, about Mary's movements and how the Gospels on resurrection morning depict her coming and going. And he's distracted by Jesus' apparent ignorance about where Lazarus had been laid. And in each of the, these cases, though, these details hang him up and he misses out on the message. Namely, for example, he fails to note the very important fact that the tomb was empty. He's getting hung up on the details. How many angels were at the tomb? And he apparently fails to note the tomb's empty. And he gets hung up on the details of now where Mary Magdalene's coming and going resurrection morning. And he fails to apparently note that Mary spoke with Christ raised, forced for the trees. And he gets hung up on the detail that, that um, Jesus apparently didn't know where Lazarus had been laid and misses the fact 
that Lazarus was brought to life after being dead three days. In fact, it's that miracle that Jesus' enemies are forced over the edge by. There's the straw that broke the Pharisees' back, so to speak. It's after Lazarus was raised from the grave, they decide we got to put this guy to death. That is Jesus. We can't have him around anymore. He's causing too much trouble. And I am not saying that asking these questions the skeptic asks are silly questions. I'm not saying that at all. And I'm not saying that details are unimportant. I have my own questions about some of the details in Scripture. But we must recognize that the four Gospels are reporting four different perspectives on the same story. And those Gospels have to be what is scholars called harmonized. In fact, a harmony of the Gospels is fairly easy to find out on the internet, and uh, scholars have been doing it uh, for hundreds of years to make sense of, for example, Mary's movements on resurrection morning. In an effort to help us see the forest for the trees, I'd like to give us some very good details and some fairly obvious details that, lead us, that should lead us to believe Christ is raised this morning alive, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again. For example, the first reason we should believe that Christ is raised is that Jesus said he would rise from the dead. Jesus taught about his resurrection. He taught about it before it happened to his disciples. And obviously, some have said that Jesus' followers made up his teachings about his resurrection to cover the disappearance of the body. Doubters have said, well, the disciples, in hindsight, when the body had disappeared, they wrote back into history some of Jesus' teachings about his coming resurrection to explain the disappearance of the body. I understand that objection. It doesn't, though, match the nature of the literature. Here's here's what I mean by that. It doesn't match ancient fiction writing. The Gospels don't read like ancient fiction. The Gospels don't read like the disciples manufactured these teachings by Jesus in order that people would believe they're true. In modern fiction writing, we expect details. We expect details about, let's say you're reading a crime novel and and the author's trying to draw you into a scene. That author's going to offer all types of details that draw us into it. The creak of the of the criminal's feet across the hardwood floor. I mean, that's that's what modern fiction is like. Folks, ancient fiction isn't like that. Ancient fiction doesn't, for example, offer things like the number of angels at the tomb or the movements of Mary Magdalene on Resurrection Sunday. That's something we're used to as modern fiction readers. But ancient fiction just isn't like that. Fiction in the ancient world lacked details of this sort which means that the details found in Jesus' teachings about his own resurrection read more like first-hand accounts. Eyewitness testimony, things that the disciples had actually heard Jesus say and then wrote down. 
I'll give you some examples here. This first example, Jesus is being asked whether he's really God and can he prove he's God? What, what would he offer that he could prove he's God and he's being questioned by the Jewish religious leaders? Here's his answer. Jesus answered them, destroy the temple in three days and I will raise it up. Do we have that slide? There it is. Destroy the temple and... He thinks they're talking about the temple in Jerusalem where all Israel came to offer sacrifices. Destroy the temple in three days and I'll raise it up. Well, the Jews listening responded, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But John notes, this is John's gospel, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, here's why this matters. Jesus is describing his resurrection in a far too complex manner to match ancient fiction. In fact, we should be honest with ourselves. What did John do for a living? Come on. I mean this as an actual question to be answered. Yes? Fisherman. Good job. A fisherman. It would be giving a fisherman a lot of credit to come up with this complexity literarily. We're giving John credit for confounding the Jewish religious leaders in leading them to believe Jesus is vaguely talking about destroying the temple that stood in Jerusalem when in actuality he means to talk about his body being destroyed in crucifixion. Wow, that's giving John a lot of credit. And it would be unparalleled, that type of complexity in ancient literature, fiction. I translated portions of Homer's Iliad during college Latin. And I'll, I'll tell you, the Gospels read nothing like the Iliad. Here's another example. Jesus compares his resurrection to the Old Testament prophet Jonah's experience in the belly of a, a big fish. He says, for as Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Again, it would be the, giving the disciples a lot of credit to think that they'd be able to draw this parallel of Jonah's experience to Jesus's. That level of complexity that's on the screen sounds like a lot more like the teachings of a man who gave us the golden rule. Are you following me here? The teachings of a man who said, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I have a lot, it's a lot easier to think, well, he would come up with a comparison of Jonah's experience to his future experience of resurrection. Even beyond the complexity of Jesus' own teachings on his resurrection is the inclusion of some people in the resurrection story that offers some detail that arguably those who are making up, potentially fabricating a story, would never offer. I'll give you an example. The inclusion of Jesus' enemies. If you are going to write a story to explain Jesus' resurrection, you're going to make it up. Would you include the names of the folks who actually orchestrated his crucifixion? Or would you want to skate under the radar and never bring up those people's names? 
I won't ask for a show of hands how many of us have manufactured lies, but as a general rule of thumb, we all typically know you want your lie to be as vague as possible so no one can trace details. Am I right in that? Look at the detailed nature of the account and the inclusion of Jesus' enemies in Matthew's record. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. So it's the chief priests, Pharisees, and Pilate who orchestrated Jesus' crucifixion. Sir, the chief priests say, we remember that while this deceiver, they're meaning Jesus, was still alive, he said, and now they have Jesus' enemies quoting Jesus' teachings about his resurrection. After three days, I'll rise again. Therefore, give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Pilate answers, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you know how. Think with me. If the disciples were going to manufacture a tale, putting words in the mouths of the people who orchestrated Jesus' death would not be something a reasonable person would do. In fact, the chief priests, the the Pharisees and Pilate could say something as simple as, that meeting never took place. Those words were never uttered. You can't prove that. It's not simply Jesus' enemies in the record of his resurrection, but it's also the inclusion of women. Mary Magdalene, who was portrayed on the platform this morning, she was the first person to see Jesus alive. Here's her report in the, book, in the Gospel of John. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It doesn't faze us to hear the, re the report of a woman in the gospel narrative. And it shouldn't in the 21st century. But if you're a first century reader, if you're a first century listener, if you're a first century liar, you would never include the testimony of a woman in the gospel account. That is, if you wanted it to be believed. It doesn't faze us at all to read that Mary was the first to see Jesus and that she ran back commissioned to tell the disciples that he was alive. It doesn't faze us because our culture's different. But in the first century, did you know that women's testimony was not even admissible to court? They were not trusted. Their testimony was perceived to be unreliable so that the disciples, including Mary, as the first person to report Christ is raised, should catch our attention. Nobody wanting first century credibility would include that testimony if they were making it up. But if they were simply reporting eyewitnesses, if they were just telling it as it happened, then they would include this detail. The truth is that Jesus' teachings about his resurrection are far too complex literarily to be considered ancient fiction. And it would be giving the disciples far too much credit to think they manufactured it. And then to consider the inclusion of Jesus' enemies in teachings on the resurrection and Mary Magdalene in the teachings on the resurrection. It's much easier to believe, in fact, that this is eyewitness, 
firsthand account, and the disciples are just writing down what unfolded in time and space, historic events. In fact, this is ultimately what convinced Anne Rice, the famous novelist. She wrote Interview with a Vampire, that's one of her best-known novels. So she's a modern, was, she's passed away, a modern fiction writer who, who read the Gospels and for herself discovered those don't read it all like fiction. And she trusted Christ as Savior because of that. So in an effort to see the forest for the trees, the first thing we need to realize is Jesus told us he'd be raised. And the, the Gospels report his teachings on resurrection. The second thing we should note was the tomb was empty. Now the most popular explanation for the tomb being empty by those who doubted his resurrection was that the disciples stole the body. They stole the body, it was said, so that they could manufacture this and keep hope alive, so to speak, so that they could spin this yarn. Well, there's a couple problems with that. If you think the disciples stole the body, then you have to picture the disciples sneaking up on an armed guard, Roman soldiers. Because I just read to us the precautions taken by the chief priests and the Pharisees and Pilate to prevent the stealing of the body. The tomb was sealed and a guard was posted. You have to picture the disciples sneaking up on the guard, overpowering them somehow, or them being asleep. And, and bear with me here. If the, if the guard was asleep, then they're asleep under the penalty of losing their own life. So Roman guards aren't going to fall asleep. So now you have, you have the disciples overpowering, overcoming these armed guards somehow, and showing a lot of courage in that, then rolling a giant stone away and absconding with the body. But that doesn't match who we meet with in the arrest accounts just three days earlier. After Judas kissed Jesus, the disciples flee. They run away. Peter, later that night, denies Christ three times because he can see where the trial is headed. It's headed nowhere good, and he wants no part of that. So why would we think if the disciples wouldn't defend him when he was alive, they would, they'd find courage and defend him when he was dead in order to spin a yarn? Even more to the point, if the disciples stole the body, that means they later suffered and died for what they knew was not true. It'd be like me suffering and dying to defend the claim that I saw a unicorn, all the while knowing I never saw a unicorn. Think with me here. I realize in every religion in the world, there are martyrs. A martyr is someone who dies for what they know, what they believe to be true. But dying for what we believe to be true is vastly different than dying for what we know to be a lie. Are you, are you tracking with me? If they stole the body and manufactured this tale of resurrection, then they died for what they knew to be untrue. And no one does that unless they're out of their mind. And there's no evidence in the New Testament as the story goes on in Acts and beyond that, that they were insane, out of their mind. In fact, the New Testament reads as, as, as if sane men and women are, are living and dying for Christ. 
it's much easier to believe that they saw Christ raised and were changed than to believe somehow that they manufactured it, stole the body, and, and knowing it was untrue, still stuck by the lie. It's much easier to believe that they saw Christ raised and were forever changed. That, in fact, is the, the next reason to believe. The apostles were dramatically changed. Stephen goes on to be stoned to death. No one in their right mind is stoned to death for what they know to be a lie. Peter is crucified upside down. Folks, when someone approaches us on a, on a yarn that we spun and we see things aren't going our way, we give up the lie because we don't want to feel the pain of it. Peter's crucified upside down, church history tells us, because he didn't consider himself worthy to die as his Savior died. The only explanation for their willingly enduring suffering, John sent to Patmos, an island jail, the beatings that occurred throughout the New Testament, that's much easier to understand if they saw Christ raised. The apostles were dramatically tra transformed from cowardly to courageous, and the best explanation is they saw Christ raised. Look in the books of Acts here, the, the experience of those who were warning Peter and John, stop preaching. Look how they experienced Peter and John as bold. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated, untrained men, not really sharp guys, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Here Peter and John are standing before the authorities that had put Christ to death. They know what's on the line. They know that they could face their own death and they won't stop preaching that Christ is risen. Fourth reason to believe is that Paul says some 500 people saw Christ at one time when he was raised. Paul points out, and they're still alive, many of them. His point is, if you don't believe me, and remember, Christ appeared to Paul. He revealed himself to Paul when Paul was going to persecute the church, and Paul has changed. He becomes a believer, and he starts advocating for the Savior whose followers he was persecuting. Paul says, the resurrection's true. Some 500 people saw him at one time, many of whom are still alive. In other words, if you don't believe me, go ask some of those 500. Here's the passage. It's on the screen. Paul is recounting the resurrection. He says, he was seen by Peter, then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. Can you imagine that gathering? Just a couple of hundred people here this morning. Imagine 500 people together and seeing Christ raised. That would have been a great celebration. Then he says, most of whom are still alive. In other words, if you don't believe me, just ask around at the number of people who saw him. A final reason to believe is the point Mary raised on the platform. She said, why didn't I see resurrection coming? He had delivered her, she reflected, from demonic possession with a single command. Why didn't I see resurrection coming? Folks, resurrection is a fitting end to the story of his life. It's a fitting end to the one who was born of a virgin, 
It's a fitting end to the one who turned water into wine. It's a fitting end to the life of one who walked on water, who calmed storms, who fed 5,000 in a single sitting. It's a fitting ending to one who opened blind eyes and deaf ears and healed crippled bodies and cleansed lepers. Resurrection's what makes most sense. In fact, if this morning, as you're hearing the reasons to believe, if you're seeing the forest for the trees, the details, and you're, seeing, you're feeling inside this, oh my gosh, this is true, then let your mouth profess what your heart is affirming. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus uh, snuck up on, you might say, two, uh, two of his disciples after he was raised. He walks along with them on this road for a little while, and they don't recognize it. Later, he reveals himself to them, and they say to him, they say to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he spoke with us? In other words, didn't we internally recognize him, they're saying? Wasn't there an emotive response to being in the presence of God? The same is true today. If in your heart you sense this desire to affirm belief, then let your mouth profess what your heart is believing. Scripture says you'll be saved. Paul writes in Romans 10.10, for it's with the heart that you believe and are justified. There's this internal affirmation that Christ died, was buried, and raised. And by that internal affirmation, we're justified before God. Formerly sinners, now seen as saved, as cleansed, justification. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. There's this tandem experience of overwhelming affirmation internally and then verbalization publicly. That's a part of what baptism is. That's a part of what singing is. Singing isn't to fill time until the preacher gets up. Singing isn't meant to... Um, to let the artist, artistic people have some part of the service. Singing is a public affirmation of what we believe together. Christ is raised. In a moment, we'll stand and we'll close the service by talking, singing about all that he's done for us in Christ. Before I get there, let me share with you my first, my initial response to the skeptic who emailed me earlier this week. It's on the screen. I'll call him Gary. Hey, Gary, I can't say that I remember you. Remember, he attended here in 2012. But I appreciate hearing from you. I assume you mean to share these thoughts to be helpful, not hurtful. Being skeptical isn't a sin. It's okay to have questions. Although the issues you raise don't throw me, I too have questions. But I also find in Scripture a compelling story of God's love for us. And I find Jesus to be beautiful in his wisdom and humility and sacrifice. Would you pray with me? Father, would you open our minds and hearts to the beauty of who Christ is and what you have done for us through Christ? Would you let our hearts affirm and then let our mouths profess faith in Jesus? so that we might be saved. It's for his glory I pray this and for our own good. Amen.